Jacob is uh, rejoining. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, it went faster than I expected it to. It it. Um, but yeah, folks, we're back. This is overtime. Second half of the program where um, <clears throat> we are going to talk some more union stuff. Uh, really looking forward to talking to Katie Barrows, um, communications director for the Department for Professional Employees of the AFL-CIO. Looking forward to that conversation. Um what do you say first we talk about um, South Carolina's governor? How's that sound? Sure. Yeah. Start it off the, with a bang. Yeah. The the child labor stuff. We've got we've got a few different stories that we can talk about there. Um, so, uh, including some good news out of Minnesota uh, from the UFCW that I'm excited to share with you. So we'll start with this since it's kind of an isolated story. Okay. So South Carolina governor. Just a reminder, just to kind of bring you back up to speed because it's kind of a um, you know, it, it, it's sort it, it, it can be a situation where it's really difficult to follow what's going on. So um, there's a, a, a new port at in South Carolina that's been built, the Leatherman Terminal, um, and the International Longshoremen Association has a contract with a big carriers association, you know, an association of of. Uh, companies that come into the port and use it to to ship goods, right? So they've got this contract, and within the contract, it says that any new uh, at any new ports, all of the labor would be done by ILA members. Okay, so that seems to me to be a pretty clear, pretty clear contract language. Any new work is going to be done by ILA members, and um, so in South Carolina, just some some geographical context for South Carolina, there is a tradition of a hybrid model on the ports where ILA members do some of the work and South Carolina state government employees do some of the work. And the South Carolina state government employees, as you can imagine, are um, uh, less well paid and um, do not have a union. So, uh, but nevertheless, you know, the contract doesn't address that, right? The contract does not address ad- uh, existing ports or terminals. Um, and and so the status quo remains, right? That's been those ports where there's a hybrid work model has been grandfathered in. The ILA is not attempting to do anything about that at this point. Uh, but this Leatherman terminal is new. Right. And so uh, so the ILA is saying, uh, you know, these carriers, they have to follow our contract. 
and the carriers attempted to not follow the contract. The carriers attempt to utilize the Leatherman terminal, um, despite the fact that South Carolina uh, is intending to continue to use this hybrid model at the new uh, at this new port. And so therefore, you know, taking jobs from ILA members, jobs that had been negotiated for and jobs that had been guaranteed to them in this contract with uh, with the carriers. And so uh, the ILA sued the carriers. The ILA has not sued South Carolina uh, or any of their departments. The ILA sued the carriers for breach of contract, for uh, not enforcing the contract. And uh, South Carolina has sued the ILA, saying that this is a secondary boycott because uh, this boycott is an attempt to, um, you know, direct South Carolina's employment practices rather than the carriers. And, you know, there's a certain argument there where, where where, you know, by virtue of the contract, you know, the carriers would would uh, encourage South Carolina to to not hire these people and to allow you, the ILA to do everything. But um, ultimately, you know, there is no pressure on the South Carolina government by the ILA. All that the ILA is saying is like, look, you know, the carriers, if you can't follow our contract at this new port, then you can't use this new port. And so the ILA is suing uh, the carriers for $300 million. South Carolina is really upset about this. Uh, they really don't like, uh, you know, the law. Uh, they really don't like following uh, the, uh, they, they, they really don't like following the law or law and order or anything like that when it benefits working people. And so they're trying to get this, uh, uh, get this contract language that the carriers provided, uh, agreed to, uh, overturned at the Supreme Court. And so that's where the situation is right now. The Supreme Court has taken up the case and, uh, that is not good. Uh, the Supreme Court is bad. Um, and so there you go. That's the situation reminder. Um, and here is a small clip of what McMaster said said in his latest State of the State address. It seems that no business or employee in South Carolina is safe from the disingenuous campaigns and destructive impacts of union infiltration. No one should bargain their prosperity under threats of union boycotts or coercive pressure campaigns. We will not let our state's economy suffer or become collateral damage as labor unions seek to consume new jobs and constrict new dues-paying members. And we will not allow the Biden administration's vigorous pro-union policies to chip away at South Carolina's sovereign interests. We will fight. Ladies and gentlemen, we will fight all the way to the gates of hell, and we will win this battle. So there we go. Um, you know, very invested in the idea of making sure that workers in South Carolina have less money, less benefits, and, and fewer protections. Very invested in that, willing to fight uh, to the gates of hell for that idea. And um, so obviously the ILA and other unions in South Carolina, not happy with this. They responded immediately with a rally the same night, and they had another bigger rally. Um, 
by unions at the Capitol. Uh, at this rally, the Union of Southern Service Workers were present, and they announced the results of a poll that they had um, uh, that they had commissioned that showed that 66% of South Carolinians approve of unions, 81% of Black voters in South Carolina approve of unions, 73% of Gen Z, 87% of voters of color, 93% of South Carolina voters approve of workers coming together to fight for better conditions, right? So when you take away, you know, the just do you approve of unions? That already has a very high approval rating among South Carolinians. But when you take away the union, the you know, the word union, uh, and you just describe what it does, uh, because people have been negatively polarized against unions for whatever reason. Uh, well, because, you know, because the elite and the bosses and, and all of this, they have media and they pay for media that, that disparages unions and, and, and purposely attempts to negatively polarize uh, workers against unions. And so when you take away that aspect of negative polarization, Polarization, and you just ask them about the, uh, you know, what, you know, ask them about what unions do over even more overwhelmingly. South Carolinians approve of this. 93% of South Carolinians approve of workers coming together to fight for better conditions. 75% of South Carolinians want a higher minimum wage. So really good, um, uh, really good uh, uh, poll there. Appreciate yeah. the Union of Southern Service Workers uh, commissioning that and right. making they're, the results public. They're doing good work. And also, yes. um, I, interestingly enough, I don't think that can be chalked up to infiltration. <laughs> I just don't think that came from infiltration. But I don't know. Yes. Uh, yep. Uh, <laughs> no, it's absolutely not. And we're going to we're going to play a clip from the Union of Southern Service Workers here in just a second. But the ILA uh, last week had had another response, a video response from the international president, Harold Daggett. Um, and so I wanted to play a bit of that. Uh, let's play this from Daggett. ILA members in the port of Charleston are among the best compensated workers in the state of South Carolina. And that burns the hell out of the governor. He sits in his all-white private country club, surrounded by his cronies, saying he'll go to the gates of hell to keep unions out. Well, let me tell you, he's gonna go to hell. ILA members in the port of Charleston are among the best compensated workers in the state of South Carolina. That's... It's looping now. Okay, yeah. So, um, uh, so good response, good energy. Uh, enjoyed listening to that clip. You can find the full clip on their YouTube channel, ILA Union. Um, and the Union of Southern Service Workers also put out a video where um, I, I think I think we can say friend of the show. I've been on a panel with her, Naomi Harris. Uh, reacted, did a did one of those uh, uh YouTube reaction videos to um the governor's state of the state address where she. You know, she watched it and listened to it and reacted to it. Uh, here is a clip from uh, that video from the Union of Southern Service Workers and Naomi Harris. We are a right-to-work state. We have the lowest union membership in the country. We have worked hard and carefully through education, training, and business recruitment to earn our record prosperity. They earn nothing. <laughs> the only people who earn something is the working class. They took it from the working class. They haven't earned nothing. If it was not for people that work at McDonald's, working as a caregiver, being nurses, if all of us that are essential workers just stop doing our job, the whole South will. That's exactly right. 
exactly right. Um, so really appreciated the unit of Southern Service Workers, the ILA, all of the work that they're doing to fight against South Carolina Governor McMaster. Um, we will continue to keep an eye on this story and let you know what happens. Um, but for now, I believe we have uh, Katie Barrows in the Zoom. Is that right? Yes, we do. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, so, I thought we were a little bit behind. Turns out we were right on schedule. We are right on schedule. Katie Barrows is the communication director for the Department for Professional Employees, AFL-CIO. Uh, Katie, welcome to the program. Hi. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm uh, excited to be on the, to talk more about unions of professionals. Uh, we're very excited about that, both uh, as both of us are uh, at this point, uh, you know, quote unquote, professional union employees, right? We both have uh, white collar jobs. Adam also has a, a blue collar job where he's a member of the stagehands union, but his uh, nonprofit that he works for, Alabama Arise, recently unionized with CWA Local 3908. Uh, so we're very excited about that. Um, and and so I guess we can start with. Uh, you know, and then I'm a federal employee. I got, you know, one of them clickety clack jobs in, in the office <laughs> as well. Uh, so, you know, let's just start with start with the, the, the premise of the thing. Right. Professional employees. People always tell me I don't I don't need a union because I have a clickety clack job. And that means that everything's great. And I have a perfect job and I have no need of a union because everything's great. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I would say that all working people, uh, including professionals, uh, need to have need need a union um that that's correct that most folks think when they think of unions they don't think of professionals they think of factory workers or grocery store employees or um you know uh yeah folks on the assembly line but professionals have a lot of the same uh concerns as other working people uh they want to be fairly compensated they want a voice in their workplace um and so you know, most folks folks are surprised when they hear that um, professionals make up about 45% of the labor movement. There's a, around uh, 6.4 million professionals in unions, um, and this includes uh, engineers at Boeing, attorneys at the ACLU, architects at firms uh, in New York, inspectors at the FAA, reporters at digital media outlets, um, and many others. So, it's uh you know unions are available for professionals like professionals are eligible under the National Labor Relations Act and other uh state legislation for public sector employees to join and form unions and um more and more prof professionals are taking advantage of that as they you know see their compensation uh not keeping up with their expenses and and the uh the return on on their labor that they give their companies. Uh, and so this is this is something we're trying to spread the word about at uh, DPE. And for those who are unfamiliar with DPE, we're a trade organization of the AFL-CIO. We're the Department for Professional Employees. Um, and we work with around 24 national unions that represent uh, nearly 4 million professionals across the workforce. And so this means we work with folks in healthcare, education, engineering, legal services, the performing arts, um, and many of our fields. And, uh, you know, we support our affiliated unions with research, uh, legislative advocacy, 
um, organizing support, communications, you name it. And DPE uh, helps unions uh, support their professional union members and organize more professionals. And so what are some of the issues that professional employees might face in the workplace that they uh, would benefit from unionization? I mean, the biggest one is pay. Like, I think almost all workers pay is like the number one reason or number one thing they would like to see improved in the workplace. Uh, DPE, we we do a regular survey of non-union professionals. And our last one uh, was in 2022. And um it, and we did one in 2017 and for both years uh pay was the most uh the most important workplace issue the the thing that they want to see improved with the union and we know that uh unions are effective at increasing uh, pay um you know union members make about 19% more than non-union employees and then specifically uh in in, in contracts we've seen huge increases in pay um, recently uh, from, you know, adjunct faculty to uh, nonprofit employees to digital journalists. Um, for example, adjunct faculty at the New Jersey Institute of Technology secured um, a 32% increase in minimum pay in the first year of their most recent contract. Wow. And then, um, you know, a 44% increase over the four-year lifetime of the contract um, we saw folks at the Onion just ratified a new contract uh, that raised their pay um, by a three percent in each year of the contract, but also a ten thousand uh, dollar increase in minimum starting salaries. Um, and you know, I've I've worked personally with nonprofits. Uh, that's one, a campaign DPE ran and in the first year of mini contracts, they've seen, you know, $10,000 increases to minimum pay, uh, and then, you know, subsequent guaranteed raises for the lifetime of the contract. So that's something that like pay is the most important thing that we've, you know, heard from professionals on. And it's something that unions, you know, have a track record of improving. Um, you know, the other benefits are are another thing that are concerned the professionals um you know parental leave uh health health insurance um and retirement contributions and we've seen that you know unions uh union members tend to have uh better health insurance plans with more em employer contributions and retirement plans some interesting things we've seen um professionals negotiate for are a student loan repayment stipends, uh, nonprofit employees at every Texan um, secured that a monthly stipend of up to $200 per month uh, towards student loan repayment for folks in their bargaining unit. Um, as I mentioned, parental leave is really important. Folks are negotiating for like 12 to 16 weeks of paid parental leave uh, so they can stay home with, uh, you know, a new, um, a new child or, and then also, um, you know, have the ability to take care of, uh, family members. And then we've also seen like, uh, outsourcing in a number of sectors has been a big issue for professionals. Um, especially when you can outsource, you know, like it jobs to other countries and, uh, you know, get, get it cheaper. Um, mm. but, uh, folks at, 
uh, at Google Contract Workers who organized in Pittsburgh um, at HCL America. They actually negotiated to keep uh, a certain number of jobs in the in the United States. Um, so that was part of the union contract. And then professionals have been um, kind of at the forefront of negotiating for DEI uh, provisions in their union contracts. So they've tried to increase diversity um, at their organizations for negotiating um, for you know a percentage or how many candidates that have to be interviewed and make it to certain points in the hiring process. Um, and that they have to be under, from underrepresented groups in that uh, in that field. Um, a number of them have negotiated in their contracts to have diversity committees, and um, also to have money that goes along with those diversity committees, so they actually are effective. And then things like pay equity uh, uh, reviews and adjustments, so looking at the salaries of everybody in the bargaining unit. And seeing if there's disparities within job classifications or job titles um, with regard to uh, people of different races and ethnicities and gender, and then making sure that there are salary adjustments uh, to, um, you know, address those disparities. And so, and we also know that you know unions. Uh, do improve uh, the working conditions and the pay for uh, professionals of color. Um, for example, black workers and Latino workers uh, earn, uh, black workers earn 26.7% more and Latino workers earn 35% more as union members compared to their non-union counterparts. Um, so these are all kind of pay uh, benefits uh, working conditions and uh, DUI, DEI initiatives. These are all things that are really um, of uh, concern to professionals. And then uh, this is something they've been able to address for their unions. And it, it really is, you know, that simple. Just the fact that, you know, w workers, whether you work at a computer um, and, and, and your labor is done primarily, you know, with your brain or, or whatever, or, you work in a factory and your labor is more manual and physical. Uh, the it, it, obviously the problems are are unique in that you know obviously right it's not the same thing to be in a factory as it is to work in an office. But the problems are the same in that you know you both typically are going to want to be paid more. You both typically are going to want to make sure that you have, you know, protections around work-life balance and, uh, uh, and, and health care and time uh, and, and being able to retire with dignity. And they are both similar in the fact that you want more control over your life, over the place where you spend the majority of your waking life, right? That, that statement is going to be true if you're a full-time working adult in the United States of America, no matter where you work, you spend the majority of your waking life at work. And so, you know, you, you, you should have some amount of say, some amount of control, a voice in what that company does and what it does to you. And the only way that you're able to get that is through unionization, right? If, if you're not unionized, if you don't have a union contract, you don't have a, have a process for collective bargaining, all of these things can be given or taken away completely at a whim. I mean, Adam, you, the 
the reason that y'all unionized actually was primarily, of course, there are some things that you want to make better, but but it was a, a, a big part of it was that, you know, you feel like your your jobs are, are pretty good and you want to make sure that things stay that way no matter what happens to management down the line. That's exactly right. And and maybe you can talk a little bit that, about that as well, Katie, because, you know, this was our union campaign was not one where people were like upset and angry uh, or fired up. Right. It wasn't that kind of situation. And people think a lot of times just like people have these misconceptions about, you know, are unions appropriate for white collar office work? People also, you know, assume that, you know, a union drive is only going to happen when people are hitting rock bottom, when people are really upset and mad at the workplace. Uh, but in fact, you know, sometimes that's the best time to unionize when you do have a good management. You could have you do have things that are going well uh, because you have a solid foundation. Right. And you know what you want to start with, which is what you have and, and build from there. Uh, and you want to protect that and lock it in. Uh, because, uh, and we've made this point before, you know, management can change. Uh, people retire, people get sick, people uh, change personally uh, due to experiences that they have. Um, you know, companies get bought out. Um, you know, I, I have a good friend who worked in a, a you know, a professional type situation, uh, office structure, uh, was a pretty good situation until the company got bought. Mm. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, people were being laid off. People's job titles were being changed. People were getting new titles with more responsibilities for less pay. Right. All these sorts of restructuring issues that can happen in a professional workplace. Um, and so, yeah, I, I didn't have a question there, but I did want to, to definitely reiterate that point, Jacob, that, uh, you know, a union is good for you as a worker. Uh, even if you're happy where you're at, even if things are going well, even if you like your boss, in fact, maybe that's the best time to unionize uh, because hopefully you'll see that your boss will, will continue to be nice and will work in good faith with you, right? Uh, of course, we know from uh, just looking around at union drives across the country that it's easy to talk a good talk, but once the workers themselves start organizing, Sometimes these progressive mission statements um, and very lovely bosses take a turn, right? And and the power dynamics start to be revealed a little bit, uh, you know, more. And so, um, yeah, I, I appreciate you bringing that up, Jacob. Well, and I just want to chime in and and reiterate what what you said. Uh, yeah, I, we've seen a lot of. Uh, especially I, off the top of my head, I think of nonprofit employees that organize when things are fairly good. They're like, we we like where we work and we, you know, we do feel like our management is fair, but, you know, leads uh, of, of nonprofit organizations, uh, they change a lot of times frequently or somebody mm -hmm. retires. And so it's good to have that locked their benefits and um, working conditions and pay locked into a union contract. Um, and, you know, you never know when things are going to, you know, if the economy's bad, you know, finance is going to take a turn. It's good to have, you know, just provisions that make sure that, uh, you know, you get a fair return on what you've given to an organization. So I, I definitely have seen folks, uh, you know, take steps to, to unionize, even though things are, are fairly good at the moment. Right, right. And some of it is, like you alluded to, preparing for when things aren't so good. 
whether that's internally or externally, right? Because of a nonprofit, you know, if you're relying on grants, what happens when some of the grants dry up, if they dry up? Uh, what happens if funders change? You know, those things can happen in the nonprofit sector. Of course, we know in private industry, you know, business environments change and, um, you know, some business leaders are more effective than others, right? Uh, and so uh, that can can change wildly and having protections in place such as a reduction in force provision, mm -hmm. right? In your contract, if, you know, stuff hits the fan financially for the organization or the company, uh, how will that shake out for employees? Who will be chosen first to be laid off? How will the layoffs be administered? What kind of severance package will be offered? Uh, how long will people have health care after the layoff? All of these are questions that like we as workers deserve to have answers to and deserve to have input into. Uh, and, and, you know, like y'all said, doing a union about it, that's how you get that input. Yeah, I mean, and we've seen like in, unfortunately, in digital journalism, mm. um, you know, things used to be really good, uh, but, you know, things have changed around media and there's been a lot of layoffs, a, a bunch of change. Um, but just fortunately, recently, a lot of them, right? yeah, just the just, last I few mean, days, yeah. right? Correct. Yeah. But fortunately, a lot of them have organized unions. And so, mm. you know, even though there's going to be layoffs and, um, people, which is, you know, people are going to lose their livelihood. At least they, uh, a lot of them have bargained for good provisions around layoffs and severance packages, um, that will give folks, you know, at least some kind of cushion to land on their feet when they're looking for another job. So and presumably I mean, recall rights, right? I mean, that's something yeah. that I know of in, in, in manufacturing, uh, uh, agreements, there's typically recall and or transfer rights if, if other jobs become available. Yeah, I don't know the specifics on that, but I would think that a lot of them are, are uh, you know, modeled after other contracts and have some of that stuff. But um, I definitely know there's, you know, there's uh, there's a lot of language around severance uh, mm -hmm. and around letting folks know as soon as possible when things are uh, not doing well at a organization. So, right, right. Um, so what are, uh, you know, uh, I have actually, in, in some instances, reached out to uh, a union uh, about a professional campaign in the area with a tip, uh, you know, people interested in and, you know, something uh, close to a nascent organizing committee um, and and been told that, you know, they don't have capacity right now. Is there any union in particular that is, you know, um, really on the move as, and, and they have capacity and they and they're wanting to take new campaigns that, that you that you're aware of in your in your department I mean I think there are a number of unions I would say that um it really depends on like the location the type of professional employee um and the like the the size all of that of, of the unit I think it all of those are factors and that, um, you know, that will de determine whether the union and the structure of the union, like if it's a mostly a local driven union, that really will depend on the local. And so that's definitely more localized. Right. And so if folks reach out to us, um, we're at uh, our organized email is organized at dot uh, org. And if they reach out to us, we will help, uh, like, 
we will do the legwork of finding the best uh, best affiliated union with us to that can you know help with their organizing campaign. Um, so we're here to like uh, to find the best fit and uh, a union that will have capacity and will be able to guide them for the union organizing process. So that's you know that's something we've done. Um, we get leads you know, very frequently, and we're able to, uh, you know, match folks with affiliated unions and help them, you know, exercise the workplace rights. I think that is huge. Uh, and, and I'm really glad that you brought that up, uh, because that's something that, you know, I want to pass along to other workers. And, and I'm sure people listening, you know, have taken note of that. That's uh, really, really helpful. Um, because it can be intimidating, I think, sometimes for, for workers who are trying to organize, right? It's kind of a scary thing, especially in a place like Alabama. It can seem quite scary. Um, it doesn't have to be, but it, it can often seem that way. Uh, and then you're trying to find like, okay, well, which union makes sense? Which one you know is interested in working with us? Which one has capacity? And who do I talk to? Which title? Which person? Uh, so, you know, I think it's a, it's a real uh, resource, what you're, what you're putting out there uh, to, to provide some of that and help kind of connect people with the right folks. Uh, and on that note, I want to really lift up uh, the the resources that y'all have available uh, are fantastic, uh, just fantastic resources online, uh, you know, and, and lots of support that you can request is my understanding. But like, for example, there's a racial justice toolkit uh, that talks all about some of the ways racial inequities, you know, exist in our professional workplaces and how you can actually address that in the collective bargaining process. Um, and I think, you know, resources like that are just very, very helpful. Uh, and so, yeah, I want to encourage folks, uh, especially those of you who would fall in this professional category, take some time, check out the Department for Professional Employees website. Uh, it is worth taking some time, dpeaflcio.org. Uh, definitely take some time to do that and, and just poke around because you're going to find some stuff really relevant and, and you know, hopefully very helpful. And I would just chime in that. Um, something that I always have to remind myself of, and this is what we found in our uh, most recent survey, the 2022 survey, and also in 2017, that most professionals do not know very much about unions. Mm. And so we want to make it as accessible to them as possible. Uh, so if they, you know, find us, we, we want to help them as much as possible to learn more about the organizing process and to, um, you know, connect them with a union. But our, our big thing is trying to get the word out that professionals can form unions. And, um, and there's a lot of things that they can improve with a union and other professionals have done this. And we have tons of examples of what they've um, managed to accomplish. And that's something that uh, folks can use in first contracts. But um, yeah, we just want to educate folks and make sure that they know they can form a union where the start. And really for, for us, we tell them the start is to email us at, at organize at dpeaflcio.org. Um, and then we also, you know, just really want to uh, support our affiliates as they uh, represent and organize more professional members. How big of a problem do you find it in these campaigns or as you're having these conversations or as you're helping workers have these conversations? How big of a problem do you find that uh, the, you know, internalized ideas of professional employees is 
to uh, to a union campaign in a professional workplace. Um, you know, I, I, I know that obviously uh, there's a big push from above from, you know, uh, the bosses and the employers, organizations and agencies to try to uh, make uh, professional employees feel that, you know, we're really special snowflakes and we don't need, you know, unions. We're, we're just a totally different kind of worker. Um, and, uh, you know, we're too good for that. Right. Uh, but but I find that there are, you know, professional employees themselves who have that uh, construction in their head uh, of themselves that they, you know, they're so smart and special that they don't need a union, right? That they're, uh, you know, they can they can handle things individually for themselves, and and uh, you know, uh, as opposed to you know maybe there's. Uh, that idea is maybe less entrenched in, in, in some other environments uh, than in, you know, a white collar uh, professional job. How big of an issue do you find that is? That to be? I mean, I think it is a barrier. Like I'll talk to folks and they, yeah, they think they, you know, I have I, in, in most cases a college degree, like right. I can mm -hmm. advocate for myself, Right. but then you get to talking to them about their workplace and mm -hmm. they start talking, complaining about, you know, their pay or mm. that, um, you know, a lot of times I hear in healthcare about staffing and this ranges mm -hmm. from, uh, nurses to doctors. Like there right. are, um, doctors who have organized unions with the, uh, with AFT and the American Federation of, of Teachers Healthcare, uh, division. And yeah, you, you start talking to them like, well, it sounds like even though you feel that you have more leverage, the boss really is not listening to you. Um, and so the way that you get folks, get the boss to listen to you is with a legally protected right to negotiate with them. And you start, you know, so once you start to have deeper conversations, folks tend to be like, oh yeah, like maybe, maybe I do need a union. And mm. then the other thing I do is I point to, um, you know, some really, uh, educated and smart folks who have been unionized for a long time. Um, and that includes, uh, the, the aerospace engineers at Boeing, um, like literal, like, you know, rocket scientists in, in, uh, in a sense. And they've been organized, um, you know, I think since like around the forties or fifties, um, you know, for, for a long time. And then, right. you know, the, the rocket science at NASA are organized, Again, yep. doctors are organized and you start pointing, giving them examples of who are, who else um, are union members. And you're kind of like, well, they see the value in a union um, right. and, you know, they're highly educated folks and they've had benefits. And then, you know, folks start to become more open to the idea. Um, I've recently done a like kind of an interview series with uh, folks who have uh, formed unions in the you know, last couple years, I've talked to um, some folks at an animation studio in uh, New York, uh, nurses in Vermont, um, librarians in Pittsburgh, and they've, you know, they've recently organized. So they've had to have conversations in the past, you know, couple of years. And, you know, they've kind of said, once we get down and talking to folks about the issues, they come around and they do see the value. And then, They've also said that one of the biggest benefits of um, having a union is kind of the collective, you know, the collective, like the the relationships that are built. Right. Like they will, mm. a lot of folks will talk about how before folks didn't really talk to each other or people didn't know each other. And right. now 
they they become you know close and and they are able to have you know regular conversations which really creates more camaraderie in the workplace and it's you know better for for everyone mm, right yeah no that uh actually uh friend of the show is the president of the rocket scientists at, at nasa down the road here in huntsville so uh we're uh, uh very uh very big fans of our rocket scientists union here uh, in huntsville so yeah and i really want to lift up that point you just made about the relationships uh, that is so true i mean uh, that is something that I experienced in this recent organizing campaign at the nonprofit. It, it really brought us together in, in a deeper way. And, you know, particularly those of us involved in the organizing drive, you know, really got I mean, because it was a lot of work. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, a, a lot of work in terms of tracking one on one conversations and debriefing with each other and strategizing and and through that really coming to lean on each other and really work as a team. Um, yeah, it does build a, a level of camaraderie and a level of solidarity uh, that is often missing in, in a lot of workplaces, but, you know, especially in professional workplaces often, uh, because, you know, like y'all were, were talking about, you know, we're talking often highly educated people, uh, people whose jobs are often very ind individualized, right? Um, you know, someone may sit down in front of their computer and, and be responsible to answer their own emails and write their own reports and things of that nature all day and not necessarily in, in the team uh, atmosphere. But, uh, you know, collective organization is definitely the way forward for any work in person. Uh, and yeah, I really, uh, I really appreciate the work that you're doing to, to lift that out. And librarians, uh, I hope will will definitely pay attention. There's so many threats to libraries right now. Uh, particularly in states like Alabama, where, uh, you know, we have book banners and we have people threatening to send librarians to jail. Um, and, and I just want to pass on to any librarians listening, uh, you need to organize. And organizing is, is the best way possible to, to protect yourself and your coworkers. Uh, and, you know, of course, the community will be behind you, but uh, organizing in the workplace is going to be part of that solution. And, uh check out DPE for more resources on how to do that, uh, which uh, I love that. And I'll definitely be sharing that with folks. There you go. The The president of the Rocket Scientist Union actually said, uh, dropped in the chat that the uh, locals at NASA have been around since the post-Apollo reduction in force in the early 70s. So uh, at least uh, at least here in Huntsville. So so there you go. There's the, the bit of trivia for today. Uh, Katie Barrows, uh, is there anything else that, that, that you wanted to make sure you leave folks with before we let you go? Well, I, I would just say, I mean, I'm sure you harp on this uh, being in Alabama, that folks often think that if they're in a right to work state, that they mm. can't uh, they can't organize a union. And that's another thing that I, I commonly have conversations with folks. I'm like, no, you, you can still have a union. Um, you know, there's just, you know, uh, it comes down to, you know, who pays during the contract and all of that jazz. But I think there is a misconception by many folks like, well, I'm in a right to work state. I can't organize. So you have the barrier to, you know, uh, professionals knowledge about unions. And then you have the overall knowledge around uh, right to work. But I would say, you know, if you are a, a working person, um, professional or not, like you generally have rights in the workplace and, and you should think about exercising them. Um, you know, and especially with, uh, you know, all that we've been through with the pandemic, inflation. Um, but for prof professionals specifically, um, if you're interested in learning more, 
you should contact us at organize at dpeaflcao.org. All right, Katie Barrows, Communication Director for the uh, Department for Professional Employees, AFL-CIO. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, and um, just wanted to point out, y'all, definitely do check that resource out. Um, and something she said that I wanted to, to mention before we even uh, transition to our next segment, which was uh, folks who think it's illegal to organize in Alabama. Mm. We do run into that all the time. Yeah. Uh, I also run into it at the public sector. I had someone just this week tell me it's illegal for me to organize, right? Um, they didn't, and it's not a knock on them at all, uh, because that is a common conception uh, that, you know, people at colleges and universities and other public sector institutions like local governments that they can't organize, um, you know, public libraries being another example, which in some cases are you know, private sector, uh, nonprofit entities, and in some cases are public sector, local government entities. Uh, it gets really complicated and messy there. Uh, but there again, you know, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm glad we had uh, DPE on today to, to, you know, share that resource and, and let folks know that there are people you can reach out to for assistance. Um, you don't have to, you know, do everything from scratch and, and reinvent the wheel. Uh, there are other people who have organized. No matter what job you have, chances are someone has organized in that job somewhere, right? Absolutely. Somewhere in this country. Uh, and so, um, you know, we just got to learn from each other, uh, continue to share and, and lift each other up with this kind of stuff and, and find leads where we can find them because uh, we have to grow the labor movement in every industry, in every kind of workplace. We have to grow if we're not growing, we're dying, and we have been dying for 50 years. Um, seems like maybe we're, you know, coming back from the death, uh, thankfully, over the last couple of years. But yeah. we've got to grow in the white-collar sector, in the professional sector. So, uh, yeah, y'all hit them up. Let's talk about child labor. Um, so, there, uh, you know, th there's a Child labor is, is really more of a topic of conversation today than it has been in a long time. And uh, in fiscal year 2023, actually, Department of Labor investigators identified child labor violations in 955 cases and assessed employers with more than $8 million in penalties. Uh, I can't remember exactly what the number is as far as like how much it's rising. I think it's like... Uh, 30, 40, 50, 60 percent year over year for the past few years. I mean, it, it's it's a growing problem. And uh, there was recently um, or, or about a year ago, uh, there uh, was created an interagency task force to combat child labor exploitation, to try to align federal efforts to uh, combat this issue. Um, we have seen uh, children dying on the job. A 15-year-old in Alabama uh, died on his first day on the job at an Alabama roofing company. Um, there have been uh, uh, children face uh, injuries, severe injuries, amputations in uh, sawmills and slaughterhouses and all sorts of, uh, you know, just all sorts of terrible, terrible things. And, you know, the uh, Republican reaction to all of this has been uh, that, you know, the problem here is that it's illegal, actually, that these children are working. Uh, we saw probably the most extreme example of this in Indiana, where a Republican lawmaker attempted to make it legal for 14-year-olds to go into the coal mines again. Uh, literally, 
for 14 year olds to to work in coal mines. I mean, actually, unironically, no exaggeration, that was a bill that was actually filed by a Republican legislator in the year of uh, the uh, the uh, you know year of our Lord 2023. Um, Alabama is not exempt. We have a bill in the Alabama legislature right now that is uh, we have two bills actually in the Alabama legislature dealing with um, dealing with child labor. One is uh, one is better than the other. Uh, so let's let's hear from uh, the 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 not as good one. Here is uh, the sponsor of the bill explaining why uh, explaining why this is such an an important bill uh, that that you know needs the attention of the legislature. This is a very serious issue, and and they're really solving some problems here. Let's listen to this. Yeah, this is a, a an important bill, and the reason is if we get the government out of the way of allowing 14 and 15 year olds to have the opportunity to work after school, et cetera, without permission of the government. There you go. That's a really pressing issue. And I, it's it's great how he says uh, government instead of schools, right? Because people obviously have a much better connotation uh, with the word schools or superintendent or teacher or principal than they do <laughs> with the government. The government being bad, scary, ooh, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, and so when, when you say, when you obfuscate it like that, they have to get permission from the government. Oh, uh, you know, like what's going on there? You have to go to the comptroller or something? No. You go to a school official and you get permission from them. That's the status quo right now in Alabama. If you're 14 and 15 and you want to get a job, you have to have a sign off from, I think it's the school superintendent uh, that, and and the school superintendent basically saying, you know, like, yay, verily, you know, little Johnny, uh, he's doing well in school. And so, you know, there's no reason why he can't go have a little part-time job uh, working at the mall for three hours a day or something like that in, in, you know, alignment with other labor laws. Um, and I don't, I don't have a problem with that, right? I mean, you know, there's no reason to have an issue with, you know, 14 and 15 year olds doing some amount of wage work as long as, you know, very important, very, 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 very important caveats that, you know, it's safe, uh, that they only do it for a, a very limited amount of time during the, uh, during the school year. Uh, you know, I think three hours a day and 18 hours a week right now is the limit. Um, and that they have, uh, you know, protection against exploitation. You know, I think one good thing for Alabama to do would be to uh, uh, force employers who hire minors to keep records of sexual assaults that happen on the job and provide those records to the parents before the parents give permission for their children to work at this job, right? Um, so, you know, that's something that I think we could see. Uh, that's something that Florida Democrats last year proposed and Florida Republicans uh, denied rejected rejected the idea that employers should provide information on sexual assaults to the parents of children who want to work in their facilities um but you know on the print the principle of the thing 14 15 year old going and doing some wage work um you know i'm not in principle opposed to it uh i think that Probably their time would be better spent doing, you know, school oriented extracurriculars like basketball or, um, you know, doing some sort of sport or doing choir or, you know, chess club or, you know, uh, just hanging out with friends or reading or doing, you know, anything else. But, you know, I I, I, I do want to, you know, give uh, families and, you know, uh, 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 
parents some amount of freedom to, you know, if they think that this is a this is something that would be valuable for their child uh, and the child feels like it, it's valuable, then, you know, look, I don't I don't want I, I personally would not want to, uh, uh, in, you know, get in the middle of that. But well, and and let me also just say. Well, you go ahead. Finish your thought. There. Yeah, well, the, but, but the the requirement that a superintendent sign off and say, you know, if if the child is in the public si- school system, right, because if they're not in the public school system, then it's going to be the private school administrator or it's going to be their parents if they're homeschooled, uh, you know, sign, doing this similar sign off to say, you know, yay, verily, you know, little Johnny is doing well enough in school that he can work. Um, that is a very important restriction. Because if you have a child uh, that is 14 years old and gets into the workforce and they are failing school, that means they are that much more likely to get caught in the, you know, in the hamster wheel and never be able to get off and never be able to make anything more of their life, um, you know, than, you know, being consistently in, in, in low wage kind of dead end jobs. Uh, and, and the reason that we have, uh, publicly available universal education is to help people, you know, make their lives better. And so if we allow children to just, uh, you know, just throw that away as uh, while they're as young as 14, we are doing a detriment to them and to society. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I, well, I totally agree with that. And, um, I also just want to mention that for a lot of these 14 and 15 year olds that are entering the workforce, it's by necessity. Mm, right. uh, it is due to the poverty in which they're living, um, whether their parents are poor or they don't have parents. Um, you know, it's no surprise that a lot of these child labor issues that we've seen over the recent years is, is immigrant children. Uh, you know, immigrant children who are some some of the most desperate. Uh, and, you know, I, I can tell you, having been a former educator and, and, you know, with a family of educators, it's typically not the middle class affluent kids who are working these jobs uh, or who are going into the workforce so young. Uh, or if they are, it is kind of like what you mentioned. It's like a little fun job at the mall, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas uh, a lot of working class kids are working by necessity. Their checks are going towards the light bill. Uh, they are buying groceries for them and their younger siblings. Um, you know, it's not just like spending money for video games. Right. And it, it is in, you know, more middle class areas a lot of times, you know, they're getting a job to kind of learn responsibility, right? They don't have to rely on the parents for their little spending money. They can go out to the to the game or the movies or whatever. Um, and so I do want to just highlight that, that mm-hmm. there is a, a, a distinction um, and there are real pressures, uh, particularly in a place like Alabama, where poverty is so widespread, there are pressures to put younger and younger kids into the workforce. Uh, and, you know, so that's something that is a trend that we have to recognize. And, um, you know, I think when you have a lot of poverty and you have a lot of families struggling with poverty, that's incentive to get as much, you know, wages as you can. Uh, and so, you know, unfortunately, that's incentive for 14 and 15 year olds to be f- focusing on wage work as opposed to education uh, mm-hmm. and their future. Right. Uh, and, you know, 
believe me, you, you talk to teachers of working class kids and they will tell you how freaking tired these kids are. Mm. They come in sleeping uh, during the school day because they're working all the time. Right. Uh, and they're, you know, helping take care of the families and the younger siblings and they are paying bills and they have all these responsibilities that really, you know, no child should have. Uh, but, you know, due to the economic circumstances so many families are facing, particularly in Alabama. And I do think that that, you know, the next thing that I'm going to say is pretty intuitive, but but I think it's worth mentioning, you know, he the the implication of saying we need to get government out of the way is that there are situations in which a reasonable person believes a 14 or 15 year old is competent and capable enough to have a job that the government is not allowing them to take. Right. And that's I, the implication. And has that been proven? Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. There, I, I, is there even anecdotes to that? Are Exactly. Are there any anecdotes in the entire state of Alabama? I would be shocked if there was even one where a child who was making uh, A's or B's or really even C's, uh, C's and B's, who uh, the superintendent denied uh, their, you know, application to get a work authorization. Uh, that that would be shocking to me if that happened. Uh, and, and I think that's that's intuitive to people. Uh, you know, it, it, it would be strange to see that happen. And so I would be interested in, in any evidence of that happening. Um, uh, of course, you know, Senator Orr has not presented any such evidence. Uh, right. Neither has the Alabama Policy Institute, who is pushing this bill, Alabama Policy Institute, a Koch, bro uh, Koch Brothers funded think tank in Alabama. They've been pushing this bill uh, or something like it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's that's the origin behind this. They, yes. you know, unveiled this as part of their legislative agenda before the session started. Yeah. And so uh, also that framing of getting government out of the way, right. like, OK, I would love to go 90 miles per hour down the parkway. Right. Let's get government out of the way. Yeah. Get government out of the way of that. Right? right. I mean, you know, you can you can take that tack on every law. Mm -hmm. Every regulation, right. every aspect of social restraint that we have. Right. Oh, it's the government getting in the way. Right. Um, I mean, and obviously folks like Senator Orr are OK with the government getting in people's way in many, many respects of our lives. Right. And I'll just leave it at that for now. So, um, you know, the so so that's a pretty obvious concern to have with this is that is that there are going to be people who uh fall through the cracks and so there is one person and i think this is actually a republican actually uh and this person said that they're going to have an amendment they're going to propose an amendment to this bill uh with the with replacing the authorization from the superintendent with authorization from the parent like a written actual form from the parent for 14s and 15 year 14 and 15 year olds saying that um uh, that they can work. But right now, if the law passed as is, if this bill passed as is, there would be no requirement for permission from the uh, from the schools or the parents. A 14-year-old could go theoretically be failing school uh, without the permission of their parents or the school or knowledge of any of these parties and go and get a job and, you know, further... Uh, you know, make their life worse. Right. right. And and let's just be real here that the same people who think a 14 year old should be able to go get a job without any parental or school consent don't trust that 14 year old to check out their own library books. Right. right. Yeah. OK, so let's play this clip. OK. Yeah. 
is there something in place to make sure that if the, the student's uh, grade point average or their work in school is, is going south? I would say that's a, you know, a, well, certainly a parental uh, jurisdiction that the parents, if, if Johnny wants to go work at McDonald's after school, uh, the grades start slipping, then the parents would say, Johnny, you, you, you know, your, your grades are slipping, you, you're going to have to quit your job or your grades got to be a certain level before we're going to allow you to uh, to do that and let the parent be a parent. And so are, they, are the parents giving them permission to work as well? Well, they, there's nothing in here that says... No, well, I'm just talking about, that, you know, that'd be a family I understand. Decision. Thank you. Yeah, thank so you. there you go. Yeah, so he get, he got caught there, you know. He's he's saying it, you know, the 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 woman is asking are are there any any things about the parents having permission or or like what restrictions are there and he says, "Well, it would be a a, you know, a family issue." And and she points out like, "Well, actually it wouldn't be a family issue. There's nothing in the bill requiring it to be a family issue. There's nothing there's no requirement for it to be any sort of issue. This 14-year-old who's failing school can just willy-nilly go and get a job uh with no permission from anybody whatsoever as a 14-year-old." So he was caught on that, and he looked kind of silly, I think, in my view. <clears throat> um, now, while there was no official Democratic opposition um, to this to this bill getting out of committee, it received a favorable report, seven to zero. So there was no Democratic opposition. The somebody on Twitter said that they called the minority leader, Anthony Daniels, and said that the reason for this is because it was a voice vote. And I talked to somebody else and they said, well, typically, you know, Democrats, just as a courtesy, they're not going to really stop a bill coming out of committee, uh, you know, especially if it's going to pass anyway or whatever, just so that maybe some Democrat bills can get out on the floor and at least get voted on as well. Um, now, of course, uh, the Republicans in this session have been have been. Uh, is my my understanding uh, uh, running over the Democrats much more than in previous sessions. So um, I don't know why you would extend Republicans this courtesy, especially when we're talking about, you know, the health and safety and, and you know, the well-being and, and educational, you know, achievements of 14-year-olds, uh, why you would uh, give, you know, Republicans the courtesy of being able to fast-track uh, this bill. Uh, it's kind of doesn't make sense to me, but there was a really eloquent expression of the concerns that would arise among any reasonable person on hearing uh the uh uh, uh this this bill and, and what it would do let's let's listen to this i understand what you're trying to do we're trying to increase workforce participation am i wrong on that I think that could be ancillary, but at three hours a day, you know, I, I don't know the, 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 the aggregate impact. It's more, why should you go to the government and get permission, or the superintendent, to be exact, to, to allow your child to, to work three hours after school at McDonald's? Why, why do we have to, why should we have to do that? Well, in my district, we have truancy issues of the black belt. And so my concern is the same as Senator Coleman Madison, is you get caught in this rat race and you start paying bills and eventually um, you drop out. And nationwide, I think this bill has come at a very inopportune time because, <laughs> because nationwide we are seeing an increase in child labor violations. And I think we all should be concerned about that and try to find other creative ways to increase workforce participation. 
and not just with our children. I mean, yeah. Amen. Really, I, I appreciate yeah. him saying that. Yes, because uh, that to me is the the context is important. Mm-hmm. The context is important that we've had uh, uh, just a rash of child labor violations that we started this segment mentioning. Um, some really scary, some really right. just disturbing child labor violations here in Alabama mm-hmm. and across the country, but right here in Alabama. That's the context, and so you see that. You, you're you aware of this news, and you think, you know what? The problem is too many superintendents getting, mm. away, getting in the way of too many 14- and 15-year-olds working. Right. Um, and, you know, Senator Orr kind of played down the workforce participation aspect to it, but the Alabama Policy Institute did not. Right. They explicitly talk about Alabama has a low labor participation rate. Alabama um, has a quote-unquote labor shortage. Yeah. Of course, we know that is a shortage of paying people a living wage. Uh, you know, the industries they name is, you know, fast food service industry jobs where typically they are paying at or near minimum wage or in some cases below minimum wage through a tipped wage, right? And so those are some of the industries they're struggling to recruit people. Um, and you know, the Alabama Policy Institute is pretty explicit that, you know, they, they want more children in the workforce as mm-hmm. a way to address this quote unquote labor shortage, which, you know, is also another way of saying a tight labor market. And that is what it looks like to me that, um, you know, slowly but surely you're going to chip away and chip away and chip away at these regulations uh, so that we look around and suddenly there's more children in the workforce and the children that are already working, it's being legalized, right? Because there's a lot of children already working under the table or in violation of these laws, because I can tell you also, having been a former educator and know educators, many of those educators know from the kids that Mm. those laws are being broken. Mm. They're being held at work later in the night than they're supposed to. Some of them are going into work before they come to school, which they're not supposed to. All these different things are happening already. Uh, So the idea that we need to cut regulations is, is the exact opposite of where we need to go. Uh, And I know, you know, folks may be listening and think, well, you know, this bill isn't that big of a deal. Um, and I guess in a practical impact, do I think there's going to be, you know, because I don't think the government is actually getting in the way (laughs) of this happening. I don't think it's a solving like a real phenomenon necessarily with like what it's really talking about of getting, getting the government out of the way. I don't think government is in the way of just like a flood of 14 and 15 year olds, but there will be some who should have been caught by the system. Be, because they're truant, because they're failing out of school, and you know, if they had come to the school system and needed the school system to sign off, it could have been that opportunity for an intervention. Exactly. Exactly. It, and, that and, could have been the the time you bring in the counselor, you right. bring in the social worker, the problem solving team, right. whatever the situation is. Of course, assuming you have much of this mm-hmm. in place, mm-hmm. uh, but you you have that intervention to say, all right, why do you want to work? Okay, just figure that out. It could be economic necessity. Uh, it could be that the lights are off at the ho- at the house, and that's part of why they're missing school, right? Mm. And so there's just the idea that you don't want that kind of involvement with 14 and 15 year olds who are not 
able to go drive independently mm. and you don't trust them to go get a library book it's just it it baffles my mind um and, and I, I see it as as a return right we are seeing a decline and a return to previous eras of labor standards where it's normalizing child labor mm. normalizing convict lease labor like you know we're we're supposed to accept this return of things that we thought we had resolved a long time ago and he tries to uh, stress the fact that this is all this is all it does it doesn't change the fact that you know uh children are not allowed to work during school hours that they can't work in construction or mining that they can't work over you know 18 hours total in a week three hours in a in a school day it's like y'all want to change that too it doesn't right yeah well not this session adam not this session all this is doing is uh, that I mean that's really the undercurrent is that not this session there but but ultimately uh you know there's going to be a bill like that in Alabama I'm almost sure of it um but uh he's really stressing that look this doesn't change any of the other child labor laws in the state um and uh but actually though and of of course he ha- has to know this he has to know this that it would make it easier for those situations to arise right I mean, one last check and balance, right? One less thing in the way of something like this happening, because, uh, you know, maybe let's say, you know, like the the, the 15 year old who was uh, working for a construction company died first day on the job. Okay, I have no idea if he actually got authorization from the school, but uh, if he did, that's something that maybe the school could have said. You know, even though you could technically work for a roofing company and, you know, do stuff like on the ground, uh, you know, they might keep a closer eye on this kid or this company or actually have a conversation with the company or, you know, like like Adam said, it's just one less thing standing in the way of, uh, you know, uh, children being abused and children being exploited by, uh, you know, capitalists. And, and this this. Not forget about that, that children are more likely to be exploited on the job and to be uh, harassed and assaulted on the job, to be cheated out of wages. Um, They're less likely to organize a union. Right. right? And uh, that's also part of the subtext to this, uh, because there's a tight labor market. There's more workers organizing than in the past. More workers feel comfortable quitting in mass and finding other employment. Right. And so. That's part of the subtext of this. But, yeah, it's 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 dangerous mm. to go to work in Alabama. It's dangerous to go to work in the United States uh, compared to other countries. It's more dangerous to work in Alabama compared to other states in the U.S. Um, it's it's no joke to right. to send kids out into the workforce and to be exposed to all sorts of different things and all sorts of different threats. And, yeah, one less check and balance on that. Um, there is a good child labor bill in the Alabama legislature, though, right? There is, yeah. Uh, so SB 119, Senate Bill 119. And ironically enough, one of the co-sponsors <laughs> is Senator multitudes. Arthur Orr. Yeah, contains um, multitudes, this fella. Yeah, he, he, he does. Um, yeah, he's got a real grab bag of legislation this year. Uh, he's got some, some good bills, um, and this is one of them. Um, he's also got some of the worst bills in the session. Well, right? I mean, the best bills and the worst bills in the session are both his, right? I mean, <laughs> certainly on the child labor issue, right? Yeah. He's he's covering both angles of it. Um, yeah. So 
he is not, of course, the only uh, co-sponsor. Senators Stewart, Coleman Madison, Beasley, Hatcher, Smitherman, and Singleton. So it is a bipartisan piece of legislation, Senate mm. Bill 119. And what this would do is increase the civil and criminal penalties for an employer who violates child labor laws. Right. And, you know, I am not a, a big proponent of our criminal justice system. Uh, typically am not in favor of increasing penalties on people. Uh, but when it comes to employers, mm. that's first of all, yes, <laughs> right. more punishment, <clears throat> whatever punishment, more punishment for employers. Yes. Uh, and when it comes to violating child labor laws, yes. I'm in favor of more punishment for people for employers that are violating that. So it would uh, increase the penalties. Just to give you an example, uh, like the first one listed, it changes from the department may to the department shall. Mm. And instead of $300, it's $1,000. Um, there's another one that goes from $1,000 to $5,000, a range of $5,000 to $10,000, actually. Uh, and so there are tougher criminal penalties as well uh, that are mentioned in the bill. Um, and so I think that's important. Um, it, it goes from, let's see, in addition to civil penalties provided for in the previous subsection, employer who is found in violation of this section involving serious physical injury to or death of a minor may be deemed guilty of a class B felony or class C felony. That's opposed to they have marked out class A misdemeanor, right? So no more misdemeanor. It's going straight to felony in that, that situation. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, it's important that we hold people accountable to law and order, right? Isn't that what, what we're supposed mm -hmm. to do in Alabama? Law and order. Uh, and so... The bosses deserve to have legal consequences. Working people have legal consequences. We have the highest, one of the highest incarceration rates in on planet Earth. Right. And so, I think uh, it's a wise idea to increase civil and criminal penalties for employers violating child labor laws. And I hope that it discourages uh, folks from violating these laws. And I hope it protects children. Uh, because after all, I've been told that Alabama's politicians are big fans of children. Um, mm. They define children in a very interesting way uh, <laughs> to include frozen embryos, apparently. But um, yes, SB 119, uh, positive piece of legislation. Uh, really appreciate the folks putting that forward. And uh, yeah, Senator Orr, I'm going to beat you up on the child labor issue. Uh on one side of it, right? And then I'm uh, but come then back the and other say, side of it, on the other side, yeah, he's a very strange fellow. We actually have uh, scheduled with him an interview uh, on Monday, uh, so we're going to be asking him about this, and y'all will be able to hear it on the next program. Yeah, if you got uh, questions, uh, things that come to mind, let us know. Yeah, um, we do have more good news on the child labor front, uh, actually, uh, amid all of the bad news. Uh, this coming out of uh, Minnesota, where the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, uh, UFCW Local 663, and this reporting is. It's coming out of uh, Workday Magazine, uh, friends of the show over That's right. Workday Magazine. Um, uh, the editor-in-chief over there is uh, uh, Sarah Lazare, formerly of In These Times, uh, friend of the show, uh, good 
uh, uh, a good writer. This this piece is from Amy uh, Stager. Amy Stager. This union wants meatpacking companies to foot the bill for child labor prevention. Um, so there we go. That kind of gives you an idea of what's going on. UFCW Local 663, which represents over 5,000 essential meat packers across Minnesota, including at Tony Downs Foods, is demanding the establishment of a child well-being fund. The employer would contribute 10 cents per each regular hour up to $50,000 to go towards alleviating working conditions that violate child labor laws. Like the long hours that children have been found working uh, into the night and providing opportunities that would benefit the community like summer internships. Uh, so this is a really exciting, you know, an innovative way for uh, that this union is fighting back uh, against, you know, the, the scourge of, of child labor across this country and, uh, you know, really taking the issue into their own hands instead of waiting for the legislature to try to, to, try to uh, you know, propose a fix. Um, and this is exactly the kind of thing that, you know, uh, unions are uniquely able to do, uh, uniquely able to confront conditions as they arise uh, much more quickly than uh, any other institution. In and and should be. It and, should be yes. because fighting child labor is one of the historic missions of our movement, and, and it should continue to be as long as this scourge continues. Absolutely. Uh, the union says, going back to the piece, the union says they are not aware of any other labor contract proposals like this seeking uh, to address uh, and prevent child labor violations, although violations have been increasing across the United States. Reporting in the New York Times on migrant child labor spurred initiatives and investigations from government agencies tasked with enforcement. Photos of children in Minnesota working in hazardous positions for meatpacking companies and news of children dying in the roofing and poultry industries are just some of the stories making headlines as lawmakers have attempted rollbacks of child labor protections in state legislatures. Um... In 2023, an investigation by the Minnesota Department of Labor uh, and Industry found that Tony Downs Food violated child labor laws. Tony Downs Food has denied they violated the law, but agreed to pay a $300,000 fine, which is obviously what you do when you're innocent. That's just totally, typically, uh, typical innocent behavior there, paying a quarter over a quarter of a million dollar fine uh, and agreeing to a three-year compliance period. An investigation by the U.S. Department of Labor found that Wisconsin-based Packers Sanitation Services use child labor across 13 states, three of which are in Minnesota, including the unionized JBS plant in Worthington, Minnesota. Another federal investigation in 2023 also found that Tennessee-based Monogram Foods violated child labor laws at a plant in Chandler, Minnesota. And so these are the things that, you know, this union is is seeing crop up all around them and and is making them you know say like okay obviously the le the you know legislatures across the country are going in exactly the opposite direction we have more children working than ever and uh, more children working in dangerous positions than ever and um you know they're trying to make that uh easier for employers to do that that's not something that we are willing to accept and so we want to try to put a stop to it um they uh, uh, Stager talked to an employee there, a member of the union, uh, Edgar, who only used his first name, uh, talking about the last injury that he suffered uh, was at the High Life Pork Processing Plant in Wyndham, Minnesota, which closed last year. 
made him uh, it made him unable to work without pain. Quote, I can't even carry my kids again without it causing a pain in my back, says Edgar, a leader with Unidos, Minnesota, who spoke during a press conference. Meat processing plants are not safe places for our children and adolescents, not only because of the risks that this entails, but also because it interrupts healthy physical psycho- and psychological development and health in general. Um, and, and so about the proposal, is it enough to restore all the harm? No, says Wong of the UFCW Local 663. But is it a start? Yes, it is a start to a solution. And that is who and what we want to be as Minnesotans, creating everyday solutions to protect children, to protect workers and make sure that they don't have to be in this false choice of going to work or going to school uh, and trying to live this American dream in Minnesota. So. Really great stuff there uh, from UFCW Local 663. Really appreciate their uh, appreciate their work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that is uh, that's going to be it for us today. I think Adam, you had some plugs you wanted to make sure that we we got to before the show ended. Yeah, let me uh, check those out because there are quite a few events coming up uh, here in Alabama and online as well. Uh, LaborNotes.org/events check that out uh they have a lot of great trainings and uh also you're running out of time to register for the labor notes conference on the early bird registration cost uh that runs out i believe the end of february um so uh, if you have not booked your uh registration for labor notes conference in april uh highly recommend that hope to see a lot of uh a lot of y'all there in chicago uh, if you can't attend, uh, stay tuned. There's a there's a good event happening in Alabama around the same time. But uh, also wanted to lift up our indoor air care advocates. Uh, our friends over there put out a new video on their YouTube channel, uh, and also they're encouraging folks to go to iaqadvocates.org/demandcleanair to learn more about why we need clean air and how you can help. Uh, appreciate all the work they're doing fighting for safer workplaces, safer schools. Uh, next weekend's going to be a busy weekend for me and uh, for a lot of folks in Alabama. We have the Poor People's Campaign is uh, holding a national day of action uh, next Saturday, and they will be gathering in state capitals in over 30 states, uh, including Montgomery here in Alabama. Uh, so that will be Saturday uh, midday down in Montgomery. Uh, check, you know, just Google Alabama Poor People's Campaign to find out more, uh, and I'll be speaking at that event briefly about Medicaid expansion. And then the very next day in Selma, uh, in conjunction with the, I believe, 59th anniversary, uh, Selma Jubilee, um, there will be a youth rally in March uh, put on by the League of Women Voters, NAACP, and a lot of other organizations, supposed to be you know hundreds of folks, including a lot of students there. Uh, and I'm uh, really uh, appreciative. I'll get the opportunity to talk about organizing uh, in front of those folks. So, yeah, uh, definitely dig that. If you're in the area, Selma, Montgomery next weekend, uh, swing on by. Uh, I'll be wearing my CWA red for sure. So just look for the little white guy uh, preaching the good word of solidarity. Um, Southern Workers Assembly is hosting a virtual discussion called Operation Dixie Lessons for Southern Workers on Thursday, February 29th at 6 p.m. Central. You can go to southernworker.org to register and learn more. Uh, Unfortunately, I have another speaking engagement that night or I would totally attend that. Uh, 
I'm trying to pass that word on to everybody I know. Um, I think that is essential history for us to learn from and study. So, uh, yeah, check out that webinar uh, Thursday, the 29th, 6 o'clock by the Southern Workers Assembly. I uh, mentioned uh, if you can't go to Labor Notes and you're in Alabama or you're in the South, uh, there will be an AFL-CIO Organizing Institute April 17th through 19th in Birmingham. So I would love to see some folks, uh, some local folks attend that. Uh, you're supposed to get your union to sponsor you. Hmm. Um, or yeah. your Central Labor Council. Your or your Central Labor or Council. Your Central Labor Council can sponsor you. That's yeah. right. That's right. And so I uh, would love to see some, you know, Alabama activists get trained at this organizing institute. Uh, you know, they hold these throughout the year, throughout the country, but uh I can't remember the last time there was one this close. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's pretty cool. Uh, check that out. Uh, any union folks who just want to learn more about organizing, uh, how to you know, grow as a leader, how to make change in your workplace and in your community, uh, good training for you. Um, let's see. Alabama Rise is hosting its annual legislative day on April 2nd. And uh, we just dropped the registration info for that, I believe, yesterday. Uh, so you can go to alarise.org. Uh, you can find out more. But that's a great opportunity to lobby your legislators in person. Uh, we'll, we'll gather up folks, uh, have a briefing, uh, go to the legislative offices and go talk to the politicians, people like Senator Arthur Orr, ask him what he's doing about child labor. Uh, and, you know, so it's a great opportunity for everyday people, working class folks to get involved in the process. Uh, would love to see some folks from North Alabama come down with me. Uh, feel free to hit me up personally if you if you want more information. But, or like I said, go to Alabama Rises website or social media. Uh, the very next day, April 3rd, is when the AFL-CIO is hosting its Roadkill Barbecue in Montgomery. Mm -hmm. And that's their version of the lobby day basically uh except in this case it's more of a big barbecue where the politicians come to them uh but there's another opportunity uh for union folks and working class folks to engage in the political process here in alabama it's a good networking opportunity uh right so i'd uh, love to see some friendly faces there definitely holler at me if you're gonna be down there i will and i look forward to seeing folks and uh last thing is um the last thing is the labor spring. If you are on a college campus and you um, want to do any kind of pro-labor event connected to the campus, uh, holler at us and also Google Labor Spring 2024. It's a Georgetown University initiative. Uh, they offer a lot of support and resources for you to pull off one of these events, uh, but I'd love to see one in Alabama. That'll be it for us this week. Appreciate everybody tuning in. Pre-order your hats, tvlr.fm slash store. Make a donation to the program, tvlr.fm slash donate. Get your local to sponsor the show. Reach out to us for more details. We will see you next week.